Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepherd. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the production advice website aimed at helping you get the best results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about Dolby Atmos, which is something I've had a ton of questions on. I know people are really keen to hear more about Atmos, and especially how mastering works in Atmos, whether mastering for Atmos is even a thing. Um, and I should be upfront and say that I'm not working in Atmos directly myself yet. So I have invited a couple of expert guests and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. With me as always is John Tidy from reaperblog.net who is going to be uh, have his producer hat on this evening. Hi, John. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing really well. Great. Mike, why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Mike Hillier. I'm one of the mastering engineers at Metropolis. Famous for? Amy Winehouse most of the time. <laughs> Um, but you're heading up the Dolby Atmos, the space, the immersive audio stuff at Metropolis, is that right? Yeah, so I'm one of the main guys who's been doing um, the Atmos mixing there. Um, it's myself, Liam Nolan, Alex Robinson, and Paul Norris. Excellent. And also we have... Emre Ramazanola. I'm a freelance engineer and mixer and other things also. I've done a lot of Atmos mixing in the last year for music. Yeah. I mean, we were just saying just before we started that I spoke to you, I think, getting on for almost exactly a year ago, and you were right in the thick of it. I think you'd been kind of working on it for maybe two or three months at that point, at the most, maybe? I would have started February or March, I think. Yeah. Quite early on um, via Dolby. Yeah. So yeah, I would have been doing a lot of it at that point. So yeah, both Mike and Em have done a ton of work in Atmos, so they're the ideal people really to to talk about this. Mike, maybe more from the mastering perspective, and Emre more from the mixing or conversion perspective. We're going to talk about what those terms mean in a minute, but I think before we even get anywhere near that stuff, we need to attempt to give people an idea of what Dolby Atmos is and why they should be interested in it. Because I think unless you've been hiding under a rock for the last year, I don't think you can have missed the fact that Dolby Atmos is now supported on most Apple devices and they've done a huge push to promote the format and they're very excited about it. And there's been a lot of buzz in the industry about it as well. I'm going to throw you guys both in at the deep end. Um, give me your five minute pitch or explanation for what Dolby Atmos is. Mike, why don't we start with you? So Dolby Atmos is a, an object-based form of mixing and, and music uh, listening, which differs from normal types of music in that it doesn't have a fixed number of channels. So normally we're used to listening to music in stereo, where you have two channels. We were all aware of 5.1, where you would have six channels. Um, Dolby Atmos throws that channel-based system out of the window and says every part of your mix can have its own object uh, up to a 128. And so every sound has its own thing and it will render to whatever speaker system you have, whether that's a full 714 system or a 5.1 system or a stereo system or headphones. It'll work on all of them. Excellent. M, what would you add to that? To get a good understanding about it, if a stereo mix is akin to painting a wall, Dolby Atmos would be painting uh, the walls and the floor and all the air in between the walls and probably the ceiling as well. So you get to fill in 
all the space around you with sound and well, I'm sure we'll get into a bit more what that practically entails but that's a kind of sort of feeling theoretically and in a lot of cases practically can sound really good on headphones as well um, regardless of any sort of hardware you might have it can just do a fantastic headphone experience and that, that's one of the most powerful things about it is a really good conversion to an immersive listening experience on headphones but it's one of the hardest things to get right and that's something to talk about i think in a bit yeah absolutely i mean i think that's great the i was thinking along similar lines to you guys when i was trying to explain thinking about how to explain how it works i think one of the things that's hardest to get your head around is this this idea of object-based mixing that mike mentioned and i think he's absolutely right the key is that with stereo and with 5.1 and even 7.1 you have a fixed number of speakers and you end up exporting the mix or the master, whatever it is, to six files or eight files or however many it might be. And then each of those files corresponds to a speaker that it's going to get played out of. And that's the thing that Atmos doesn't have. Atmos is almost more like a set of instructions that tell the sounds what to do. And then the renderer will create the best possible version of that, depending on how many speakers you have. So if you're in a movie theater with... 20 or 30 speakers, it will use all of those speakers to the fullest capabilities to give you surround sound. If you have, as Mike says, a 9.1.4 mix or a 7.1.2 system, it will use those speakers. If you only have 5.1, it will only use those. And if you only have a pair of headphones, it will give you a binaural render. And I think the extra dimension that it gives you is height. Lots of us are familiar with the 5.1 setup where you have two speakers in front one in the center, and then two rear surround speakers. With most Atmos systems, you will also have at least two, possibly four or more speakers up in the ceiling, probably laid out in a square that will give you that height information, enable you to pan sounds over the top of your head. And that simply wasn't possible with 5.1 or 7.1. You could create something that kind of maybe felt a little bit like that was happening, but with an Atmos mix, you could literally choose to pan something across above your head in a in an arc or in a line or back to front that information is built into the master file it's an adm file audio definition model file and that includes all of the instructions to what the sounds are supposed to do and then will give you the best possible result when it gets rendered if you have speakers above you then the sound will get panned across your head if you only have a pair of earbuds it will give you a binaural render and we'll talk a little bit more about binaural in a minute because as Emre said it's it's really important i think it's fair to say it's all in the early stages but it's a really cool idea that has a ton of potential so i mentioned or we all referred there to 7.1.4 and we should probably just quickly say that that is 7.1 would be seven speakers around you point one is low frequency effects and lfe subwoofer channel and then the point four is the height information I think the other thing that's really confusing about Atmos is that it really blurs the distinctions between, certainly between mixing and mastering, because you have this ADM file that can have 128 objects in it that can be moved around in three-dimensional space and played out by the renderer at the end of it. And those files could actually be imported back into a DAW, at which point you've basically almost got the mix back. Is that 
accurate for me to say that, Mike? Yeah. The mixes that you're getting delivered for mastering, what do they look like? What's, what's a typical setup and, and what's the process that you go through for that? So, yeah, as, as, as you rightly say, we, we receive ADMs that have been mixed in Dolby Atmos, ready to go. Most of the time, I'd say they're, they're, they're largely discrete object mixes. There's not been a huge amount of use of the bed. So I'm just going to interrupt you briefly just to make sure that, because I think people listening to this won't be familiar to this. So if I have it right, the bed is, for example, 7.1.2, effectively discrete files, one for each of the speakers. Correct. If you had an object, I mean, typically, if you, let's imagine something in a feature film, if it was a helicopter, it would be the sound of a helicopter that you could then pan around the 3D space using the um, automation mechanisms in the Dolby renderer. Yeah, correct. So what sometimes happens with uh, uh, archive material that's been maybe made into 5.1 already and they want to make a really quick Dolby Atmos version is they will use most of the 5.1 mix as is and leave that alone in the bed and then just take out a few objects to use uh, separate from that. And that's a bit of a shame because that's not using the Dolby Atmos technology to its strengths. And it's also quite restrictive. So if you've, as, as you said, the bed is kind of fixed 7.1.2 7 speakers, which means if you have a nine point something system, it's just not going to use two of your speakers at all. The other thing is obviously I, I don't get as much control, but that the actual control for me is not as much of an issue. I assume the placement is already done so I'm not digging in and changing anyone's Atmos pan positions in a mastering capacity. I could potentially envisage a scenario where I would. Um, maybe we'll discuss that later. But um, all we're really doing is, is EQ, just to balance out the mixes, make them sound a bit better. Okay. I'm interested in how that works practically. You'd be applying EQ to individual objects in the mix or to an entire bed, presumably if you needed to? I apply EQ across all objects and the bed. Um, and in Pro Tools, and I presume there are similar things in Logic and Reaper and it's all the rest, um, I'm able to create groups and then have grouped EQ. So whenever I control one EQ on any one channel, it controls all of the EQs on all of the other channels simultaneously in the same way so it, it's more similar in practice to how i'm used to mastering in a stereo world i do then have that opportunity of disabling groups and digging in and being like okay actually i do just want to eq this one channel on this one but it's nice to just have that control and my main goal is to get the atmos version balance wise to sound similar to the stereo Right. And that's a really important question that we're going to come back to. We, we've actually jumped slightly ahead, I think, in the conversation by getting into the distinction or talking about mastering already. Just kind of rewinding and talking about a really purist setup, if you like. If we had a, a project that was conceived from the outset for Atmos, I'd just like to talk briefly about what that might look like. I mean, obviously, if we're recording, say, a band, then you would track the instruments themselves. But I think probably also I would be thinking, okay, I want to get 
four or more microphones recording the space that we're in to try and get some sense of, of that so that that can be used in the Atmos rig. Um, having not done it, I imagine that I might play around with things like a sound field mic, for example, that would get me a 3D sound field that could be played with. And then you could be incredibly creative going through the mixing and production process, playing with all of that stuff and with the, the space. I mean, Emery, have you... Are, are people doing that kind of work yet? Is it coming through to you yet? A, a little bit. Um, I would pretty much not do that <laughs> for most things, uh, only only because uh, when I'm doing most Atmos work, I'm mixing with discrete objects and uh, maybe some ambient, depending on what kind of project it was, but I'm, I'm starting one and it will mainly be discrete stereo objects. So I would take probably more separate stereo channels than sort of cohesive arrays probably as a starting point to have a bit more flexibility about where i put things i mean there is you can do stuff with the ambio uh the ambisonic mics and down mix them there's a couple of options to do that and that be gives you like the whole 7.1.2 anyway i think you can get out of those fairly successfully in in one spot but i'm often less literal than that in the atmos sort mm-hmm. of creation it might be maybe more the classical approach would be that would be really useful, I think, where it's more front and space. A couple of projects I'm doing from scratch in Atmos are just with that in mind, rather than any massively different recording, it's just having enough separation and concept of where we're going on the tracking stage and the production stage to make the most of it afterwards, rather than doing sort of fixed Atmos-specific recording. I think, depending depending on what it is. But the, these particular projects are more not particularly sort of natural sounding things, so I'm, I'm not sure that's going to happen much, if sure. at all. It's interesting because Mike was saying, oh, yes, we get the ADM files in for mastering, and, you know, that's obviously already becoming a workflow for him. Whereas when I've talked to you before, and just from the things you were saying there, it seemed much more that you were basically used to producing a completely finished product. And I mean, I think I've heard you say before that you quite often wouldn't have something mastered at all, even if you were working in stereo. Yeah, m- most, of the, most of the time. But for Atmos, certainly there's absolutely no mastering part of any of the stuff I do because before we start any of the mixes, which are usually like sort of most of the work has been sort of major label singles or albums, it's an exact match to close to nulling with the stereo masters before you even start the Atmos mix. And that'll be, you know, however many objects we've got going on. I mean, a lot sometimes it will be ganged, keyed, um, EQ, multi-band compression, limiting, all from a pre-mix print of the stems. So you're getting sort of pre-master mix bus effectively across the objects. And that'll be where you'll start on most things, certainly if it's sort of a heavily limited kind of pop thing. It'll be exactly recreating that just in pure stereo, it will, as close to null as it's possible with a separate pass of, you know, modulating effects and stuff. But that will be the beginning point. So there won't be sort of anywhere afterwards that it should go or have anything done to it because it'll exactly match integrated level and the the tone and balance and everything should be the same. Just like almost like the, the approach of those kind of mixes, which I can't really call conversions because that's confusingly being sort of adopted from more like up mixes really they should just be pulled out into the room effectively but sound identical to the stereo like on a very low level even if it's extremely immersive will sound 
almost identical to the stereo mix as you're playing through before the room gets excited and the speed and uh, you're hearing the placement at a reasonable level and when you're talking about those you've got that mix ref is that the mastered mix yes mastered mix yeah we go to the point of even following the dynamics of the album you know you follow you find the loudest track on the record and apply that offset to the rest you know to make it minus 18 so you're actually exactly following the stereo mastering as well Right, yeah, and and that's a so since you mentioned it, let's just kind of highlight that point. Certainly for Universal, and I think in general, the recommendation or the requirement for Atmos mixing is that the loudest song on the album should be at minus eighteen LUFS. I'll pause and check. I've got that right. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, it is minus eighteen, minus one true peak, and then from there, everything else would be scaled. So anybody listening to this podcast will immediately realize that that's a huge deal um, and something that I'm quite excited about because rather than, you know, pop and EDM mixes being delivered at minus four LUFS or higher, we have a specification that the loudest song is at minus 18 and then everything else musically balances with that, which means that if people want to, there's the opportunity to make things fantastically dynamic and certainly more dynamic than they might otherwise feel they need to because of the, you know, the pressures that are put on people by the requirements of labels and artists and all the rest of it. And just for anybody listening, if you have, uh, I think anything from an iPhone 7 on will work with Atmos at this point. You can go into the settings, you can tell it to always play Atmos rather than default automatic settings. So then you can hear it even if you don't have a pair of Apple earbuds, although you won't get the head tracking, which is another thing we could talk about in a minute. But if you turn that on and then go into iTunes and start searching for things that have Atmos mixes and you'll see the Atmos logo pop up, if you turn sound check on to make sure that the loudness difference between the two is as small as possible, you can actually toggle spatial audio on the iPhone on and off and hear for yourself the difference between the stereo versions and the binaural renders of the Atmos mixes. So that's uh, you know the specially optimised version for listening on earbuds. And you'll be able to hear how the spatial stuff in the mix is affecting the way that they've sounded I mean, as Emre says, in lots of cases, that will be quite subtle, um, but hopefully still worthwhile. But for me, lots of them that I listen to, I just appreciate the extra dynamics. There's just less distortion, less crunch, more room for the bass to hit. Um, I'm loving it. It doesn't work on all of them. There are some of them where it just doesn't have the same intensity. And I know that's something that you work hard on, Emre, with the, the stuff that you're doing to make sure you do maintain that because it's an important property of the original stereo mix. So some of them, it kind of falls apart a bit, but the most successful ones, I think, work really well. Um, Mike, I'm guessing you're enjoying the dynamics of the format. Would that be true? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it's, it certainly allows you, as a mastering engineer, to pick and choose quite how much limiting and compression you want to use based on purely the sonics and not trying to just push something to get extra loudness, which has been you know, quite a big issue. It's just, it's just really freeing and relaxing. And I, I love working on things where that isn't a question. And do you find it a challenge to maintain the same feeling of intensity and density and aggression in things when you're not pushing everything up into a limiter all the time? No, because if I feel like I don't have enough intensity, I can push it into a limiter. And I regularly do push things into limiters to get that sound What's nice is I don't have to. Mm-hmm. 
if I want that sound and I want it to be denser and I want it to be more aggressive and I want it to be more squashed, I'm just going to push it harder into the limiter. And sometimes that's the right thing to do. And other times you're just doing that because you know the client's going to come back and ask for it louder if you don't. And with Atmos, the client is not going to come back and ask for it louder. Right. Yeah. Huh. Well, I have had that, which we had to go and send quite... <laughs> we had to go, hang on a minute, no, um, sorry, we can't. Yeah, sorry, I should have said, they will ask. <laughs> it's just that the answer is no. <laughs> yeah. And it's amazing how much less limiting you can use and get the same effect and have much more dynamic range and it still be, I mean, often more exciting. Yeah. Often it's with limiting, sometimes it's with rides, but you can you can match all the original intensity and, you know, have double or three times the dynamic range and it still sounds just as intense and dense which is great that's a really pleasant thing about doing it and obviously less fatiguing and um more engaging and depending how much leeway you have depending on the artist like if it's if it's uh often these i don't know how much i should say but these these atmos mixes are not called on by the artist so that's when i engage maximum respect button and it's um and it's they're, they're sort of immersive but identical to the stereo. So they'll be fully immersive, everything will be going, but it, it will be the stereo mix exactly. If you get more leeway um, or get to work with the artist, I can deviate from not so much balance, but kind of like how the dynamics work and get more impact and more out of the Atmos mix. and still hit the same integrated level, but that you can get a more dynamic mix and it's really effective and it can be... It can be really great, but again, that wouldn't be my default position unless because it does sound different than the stereo mix. But um, it's got a lot of leeway to be really impressive. But um, I don't always get to use it because you don't always have the artists engaged at the moment. Because, like you said, it's early. Yeah, no, I mean that that's so cool to hear because I mean that's what I hear in the most successful mixes that I've been listening to. You know, is exactly that. It has everything that the stereo had, but more. And I actually made a couple of YouTube videos on uh, Atmos. We'll, there's one of them where I do a comparison of that for a few fairly recent big hits. So if anybody listening to this is interested, we'll put the link to that in the show notes at themasteringshow.com. So I want to dig into this whole issue of the binaural mix and how you can have an immersive thing that sounds like a stereo thing, as you were saying, Emre. But just before we do that, I want to kind of circle back to, I mean, it's interesting to me because... Mike obviously has clients who are sending files to be mastered and they expect them to be mastered, whereas you're working on mixes and not expecting them to be mastered. Now, I know your room has been uh, given the the go-ahead by Dolby, and that's not going to be the case for every system out there. I'm curious what you guys think is going to happen in terms of, do we think it's going to be a small select group, as it currently is, of mixers set up with a full Atmos rig and almost mastering grade monitoring and a super light touch mastering, do we think that's going to become, I mean, this is just opinion, obviously it's just speculation, but is that going to be the norm or are we going to have lots of people trying to uh, do Atmos mixing, listening purely in binaural, you know, just with a pair of headphones and then sending it to you guys to get the, the final seal of approval or the final tweaks um, do you think that's impossible to do that? Actually, I think probably, Emery, you probably do, because I think you've said that to me before. Do you want to go first and give us your opinion? Yeah, don't, don't do the mix on the headphones, <laughs> please. If you've done a ton of stuff on speakers, 
and you have a really, really good workflow, you could potentially get most of the way there with headphones. You would have to know how the binaural engine responds really, really well. And you'd have to know about what it actually sounds like rather than what it sounds like in your headphones. And what happens when you put things where and ignore the tonal changes from the binaural engine um, and understand what's actually going on. So it's, it's way complex and unintuitive if you want to try and do it. I mean, I've done it a few times it, just because of time and then taking it and then finished on speakers and, and spent, you know, five minutes on speakers. So it's, it was close, you know. You could do a very, very safe mix on headphones with a relatively high chance of getting something successful. But, you know, there's quite a few pitfalls you'd have to go through and get right first. People will be doing it and are doing it constantly. And thank goodness there's some potential in mastering to save it afterwards. But um, I've heard quite a few headphone things and there are lots of things you can tell we mix on headphones that are out there. Uh, and it's obviously a much cheaper option uh, for everyone involved and especially people paying so um the people doing their headphones tend to do it a lot cheaper yeah i don't know i think what we'll see is a lot more of that happening actually and what we'll also see is a lot more of just stereo mixers jumping in not totally realizing what's involved to, in the process certainly not the doing three mixes at the same time only being able to hear two of them and one of them uh, having an inverted relationship to the main mix which is what you're doing when you're doing a speaker mix and your binaural mix and being aware of Apple Spatial at the same time. Um, they're not really aware of this. And I've talked to quite a few stereo mixers, quite big stereo mixers, who don't even put headphones on at any point, just do a speaker mix. So there's all kinds of issues with this. It's addressing your first point, it's like what, what's going to happen is more and more people are going to do it at the moment. And it's an enormous amount of work to get the quality right. Um, and to, to get it reflecting the stereo mix well. And if you have the artist's blessing, then, you know, taking it on and being creative with it and doing stuff that's going to translate properly. So, yes, I think mastering is going to be massively in demand for Atmos because it will be fixing the issues in the mixing, which I think are undoubtedly going to come as more people come on board. Uh, even if they're, even if someone experienced stereo mixing is jumping into a great room with Atmos, there's so many things you have to be aware of. And I think it would be very lucky to get a really good mix on your first sort of run without a lot of help, you know. Yeah. Our mastering will be extremely important, I think, because like, like Mike said, there's lots you can do depending on what you get presented. Yeah. Uh, no, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, Mike, what are you, what are you seeing at the moment? So, you know, we're about, I mean, Atmos has been around for much longer, but Obviously, this explosion of interest started about a year ago when Apple announced, you know, spatial audio with support for Atmos. And spatial audio is slightly different. And we'll talk about that in a minute when we get into the binaural conversation. But I'm just curious what your, I mean, you said you're getting ADM files. Is Are they all coming from pro mixers in actual Atmos rooms? And you're just literally doing that kind of, you know, the final polish sweetening type of mastering work? Or are you also getting some some more kind of DIY homebrew stuff where people are cobbling a system together or even working on headphones. What are you seeing? I haven't yet seen anyone who's done anything on headphones send anything through. It has all been kind of pro and semi-pro mixers who aren't yet comfortable with Atmos and who want someone working in a room that is Dolby approved and that is perhaps better than the room that they're working in to cast an extra ear over it at the end. 
Um, I do expect I'm getting, a, I'm fielding a lot of questions from people who are asking about headphone mixes and what you can and can't do with that. And I did give it a go um, and I hated it and deleted everything I did and started again on the speakers. <laughs> You've got to try, right? I mean, it's amazing if you find, I mean, I do know one of my friends in America has incredible specialization from his HRTF. He's just, he's just perfect. He says, I can hear everything. And I get literally nothing. I found nothing. I found all. that's something you can learn. I got nothing at first, but I've picked it up a bit more over yeah. time. Okay. Yeah, you can work out what, what it means, can't you? Sorry to interrupt you. I'm super interested to hear this, but I think we need to explain for people listening who aren't kind of aware of what binaural is yet, kind of what, what this all means. So we've talked several times about the fact that you can take this Atmos mix, which is this a genuine 3D mix that kind of is almost, I think of it as pre-bounced, you know, in the ADM file. It's It hasn't been rendered to the final files that are going to be sent to the speakers until you actually play it back. And so, yeah, you can have it on this huge rig or a 5.1 rig or on earbuds. And on earbuds, the question is, well, how do you get any sense of spatial awareness from a mix at all? Because you only have two ears, which as soon as you say it, you realize, well, we only have two ears anyway. So how do we get a 3D impression of sound from the real world? And there's a few answers to that. You know, one of them is just the physical sensation of sound. If you have a massive bass bin in front of you, you can feel the, the sound energy from that speaker hitting you. You can see stuff. That gives you clues as to where sounds are coming from. But the other fascinating thing that happens is that the sound never comes directly from a sound source into our ears. It has to interact with our head, our face, our shoulders, our torso, and also the shape of our ears. Everybody has a unique ear shape even though we all have roughly the same shaped ears, um, it's almost like your head and your ears are almost like a fingerprint for audio. So you play the same piece of audio to two different people standing in the same place. What actually reaches the inside of their ears is subtly different. And because they've been hearing that ever since they were born, their brains are able to decode all of that information. So just one really simple example is if you played someone some pink noise from a speaker... You can actually try this yourself, you know, get an iPhone or maybe not an iPhone, something with a slightly better speaker, play yourself some pink noise and just move your arm around your head. And if you listen carefully, you will hear at least one, probably more notches in the frequency spectrum, basically, depending on the angle that the sound hits your ear and where it is in relation to your head, it colors the sound. And our brains can decode all of this information and use it as clues to figure out where sounds are coming from. So that's what a binaural recording is. You actually have a dummy head, a, a fake head, probably made of foam with ears, and the microphones go inside those ears so that the sound recorded by the microphones is processed, if you like, by the head and the ears when it's recorded and therefore gives you a much more realistic three-dimensional result when played back. In fact, you can get an absolutely perfect binaural recording for yourself I think I've mentioned on the show before, I have a pair of binaural mics that you wear in your, or I wear them in my ears. And the result is incredibly lifelike and convincing. Now, of course, that's not going to work for everybody because that's me with my head and my ears. Mics will be different. M-rays will be different. Everybody's will be different. With the binaural that you hear from an Obi Atmos mix, they've actually created a a generalized, it's an attempt at a one-size-fits-all binaural 
encoding of the sound, experience of the sound. So they take all of those objects and beds that are in the Atmos mix and they process them and say, well, okay, if this sound were directly above your head, how would it sound? And the encoder generates the best facsimile it can of the sound. That creates an impression of binaural space. So it creates something that is, well, depending on who you talk to, as Emery was just saying, his, his friend in America, it's amazingly good. He can hear, you know, is something behind him? Is it above him, behind, left, right? I hear some things in from the binaural renderer fairly well, um, others not so well. Emery says he gets nothing from it. Mike, how about you? So I definitely got nothing at first, and I was really worried, actually. I didn't know how I was going to, you know, <laughs> how am I supposed to work with this technology if I don't hear it myself? Um, but over time, I do feel like I've developed a better ear for the binaural experience. I still don't think I'm probably as good as Emery's friend in America, but I do have a better understanding than I did when I started. Right. So I think then the the final bit of explanation to add to this before we get into talking about the the practicalities of, of working with it um, is that one of the exciting things, but also one of the potential problems is that the binaural technology can be updated, right? It, so the, the binaural renderer is using a mathematical model of a room with certain properties, and you're able to place objects within that room and create the impression of space up to a point. That model can be upgraded in future. And one of the important things is that uh, Emre mentioned it, the HRTF, the Head Related Transfer Function, that is basically the name given to this sonic fingerprint that your head and ears give the sound. And one really exciting option for the future would be personalized HRTF functions. So rather than using this generic render for the sound, you could have personalized. So maybe when you go and buy your phone, they take a 3D scan of your head and upload that scan into the phone so that when the phone plays back an Atmos mix, it's tailor-made for you. That could potentially, if if the tech can live up to the idea, give you a far more effective binaural response to the music. So even more immersive than what we're currently hearing. That's one exciting thing. One of the problems though is that there are multiple ways of creating binaural mixes. And right now, in particular, there is Dolby's method, which is built into the encoder that everybody is using to make their Atmos mixes. And then there's the method that Apple are using on their spatial audio implementation. They have had to use the technology in a different way because the codec that is being used to transmit the Atmos mixes online or via the internet to our phones and iPads and soundbars doesn't support some of the extra metadata that Dolby have put in there for fine-tuning the binaural experience. Personally, when I first heard Atmos mixes on an Apple device, I was concerned because I wasn't really impressed with that result at all. Happily, I can say that a year later, with I think the last revision of iOS, they have updated the rendering engine um, on these devices, and it sounds much better to me. I'm much happier with it. Um, so I don't think this is a huge issue, but it does introduce some complications. Emre, maybe you could describe what those are to us briefly. A really massive part of the Atmos Mix process is making sure the binaural mix translates and ideally sounds 
identical to your speaker mix, which is your master mix, because mainly for the reason you said, your speaker and your approved tuned speaker system creates your sort of true master for, um, and the headphone mix will change as technology develops and as binaural options change and different encoding changes. So the main thing with the Dolby binaural render is that per object and per channel of the bed, you can set the binaural data to be either off, um, near, mid or far, which is how deep in the binaural room uh, the channel is or the object is. And that is really crucial. And um, this is a massive part of the mix uh, per object where it goes in the binaural room and ha whether it's even in it. And that's the most critical thing with the with the Apple model is you can't, it doesn't acknowledge where objects are out of the binauralization entirely, which is a vital part of certainly my workflow and other people I know as well, um, which parts are spatialized and what aren't uh, to better reflect the stereo mix and give you a properly um, sort of a proper reflection of what you're doing on speakers and so that that's a that's a massive issue still for me anyway um, I make all these binaural decisions which then are totally absent from the Apple render and that's a big part of the mix and it even affects speaker position placement as well actually it, expect, it affects where you put things quite quite dramatically sometimes uh, depending on content, because the room is very reactive uh, to certain frequencies, certainly, and certain positions, and it's a very interactive um, beast, the, the binaural room, which can can work really, really, really well, but the position and the position in the room is vital, and so that's a huge part of the mix, but not really, well, not at all reflected in the Apple Spatial at the moment. That sounds like a pretty hefty criticism, which I think to some extent it is. On the other hand, within the first year, they have already updated the way things are working to sound better. I think we can certainly hope that that trend will continue. Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah. Um, the other practical limitation, I think, of, uh, that people need to be aware of in terms of the binaural mix or the binaural render in terms of Apple is that whereas with the Dolby renderer, you can audition it live, currently that's not possible for Apple. So currently the workflow is you set up the binaural render to sound as good as it can using the Dolby renderer. Then you export a video file which has to be moved across onto an Apple device and listened to from there. And uh, I think, Em, you said there were eight steps to getting that transfer right. So, varies with OS. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, that's not ideal, specifically not from our perspective, or my perspective anyway, as a mastering engineer, the idea of not being able to hear how something is going to sound on the final device in real time is, is really frustrating. But again, I think that's something that I think we can be pretty confident is going to improve in future. Mike, how have you found the experience of listening to a speaker mix versus listening to the binaural render? What do you feel like the translation is like? Have you noticed the difference with the Apple render? Do you find it's a problem or is it working pretty well in your experience? The Apple renderer, as you, as as Emery's put it, it, it has been problematic because it isn't the same as the thing you've just been spending however long working on, <laughs> and there's there's no way of checking what you're going to do short of printing it, exporting it onto a different device, getting your headphones out, listening it separately on that, and then going back to your thing, and then any change you make to that thing then changes your binaural version, so the version that may be listened to on uh, an Amazon stream 
is going to be based on the actual binaural file. So you then end up in this horrible position where you're having to decide whether you want the sound to be right on the Dolby binaural or right on the Apple binaural or right in the speakers. And I tend to err towards it should be right in the speakers because that's the fixed thing. But I I don't know the exact numbers, but I imagine it's about 95% of people actually listening are on headphones. So it's got to sound good for them. That's the paradox, isn't it? Yeah, Apple have kind of exploded the notoriety, the interest in, in the format. But yeah, people are, most people are listening in a way that is not the optimal way to listen in the format. Emery, it sounds like you have the same opinion. The speaker mix is the mix and you get the binaural experience as good as you possibly can. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, me and, you know, a couple of other guys that I work with a lot, uh, we have a workflow and our binaural mixes we're happy with, but it's not it's not straightforward at all <laughs> to, to get that happening at all. Um, it's not just like set a few objects and off you go. It's, it's really, really tricky. And there's quite a lot of, it's not quite compromised, but yeah, it's the, the, the speaker mix is the master, just as Mike says. That, that's the thing that will persist and the uh, binaural technology will change and improve. And hopefully, ideally, the idea would be sound like the speaker mix. Yeah, that, that's where it, I would hope it's going. You know, it will be as close to this true Atmos experience as it, as it can get. So I, I completely agree with that. But um, you, you can get the binaural mix really working well, like really, really, really good. And in some cases, not always, but in some cases, if, it, if it's right and everything is well with stems and what you're working with, you can sort of make it potentially a more pleasant listening experience than the stereo mix sometimes. Yeah. It really depends, and that's... Uh, often only because the stereo mix is great, incidentally, as well. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And uh, just to give an example of something that I think sounds fantastic if people want to go and listen to this for themselves, um, I would recommend the recent Billie Eilish album. I have chosen to download the Atmos version of that to my phone so that I always hear the binaural render of the Atmos version rather than the stereo mix. There are a few songs where there is some intensity in the stereo versions that the Atmos versions lack a little bit, but actually I really enjoy the spatial elements to it. The, the music suits that way of listening really well and the dynamics that we talked about earlier really do kind of make that album for me, listening in that way. And just to maybe put something kind of concrete onto the things that we've been talking about here for people, my experience playing around with the binaural render was that you know, I mentioned this, that our ears put these, effectively put notches in the frequency response. Um, that means that if you have something that you've been listening to in standard stereo, and let's say you get the EQ on the vocal perfect, and of course the EQ is the most important thing in any mix that has a vocal, then if you flip over to the binaural render, chances are there's going to be some kind of change to that EQ because of the binaural processing. So for me, that's a classic example where I would probably choose to exclude the vocal from the binaural emulation in the mix to make sure that the vocal sounds exactly in the binaural render as I would like it as compared to the original mix. 
I don't know whether you guys would agree with that, but that's certainly in the, the, the messing around with that I've done, that's the kind of approach that I would take, unless I was looking for some kind of creative effect of the vocal being up above my head or doing something weird. But if it's a front and centre vocal, I'm thinking, no binaural processing on that at all, thanks. Let's just have a really beautiful sounding vocal. And if that instruction is then ignored in the binaural render, that's a challenge because it's changing the vocal sound in a way that you, you know, you wouldn't ideally like. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that Emre and Mike and everybody else working in immersive at the moment is dealing with. I think I'd agree with that pretty much. There was nothing uh, controversial. I was just going to ask Emre a question because you're obviously doing more kind of mix from the ground up stuff, whereas everything everything yeah. I get is pre-mixed. Are you finding you EQ things... So obviously when you're working in stereo, you've got to kind of fit things into the stereo field. And so you have to do a certain yeah, yeah. Of, um, of, of EQ just to, to achieve that. Whereas with Atmos, obviously you don't. Is that something you are able to take advantage of and are taking advantage of often? Well, the absolutely vast majority of the mixes I'm doing are these kind of like, you know, a, a pop single or a pop album or something where it's just it's just needs to sound exactly the same. So I'm not doing anything other than exactly matching it to the stereo. And if the stems are good, I've definitely done no EQ at all on some, you know. And if they're not good, uh, I'll be matching rather than sort of doing more more stereo-esque mix moves, you know what I mean? So it, it's, um, it's not even thinking in that way so much more as just like getting this basic thing going and then after that tonally i'm just all i'm doing is making sure it sounds identical to the stereo mix right which can be like massively complicated as you know but that's the kind of approach but on the few things i've got to do which are completely free it's yes there feels like there's like 15 db more headroom and everything is easier it's basically how it feels when you're just doing a ground up mix i did one recently a big 80s band track with one of the more complicated mix aesthetics uh, from tape basically to atmos and that was very interesting because i got this i matched the stereo mix because there's obviously no stems of this stuff and it, it's not not a big guess of what kind of mixer it was who did everything in the mix everything absolutely everything so it was um matching the stereo was great and it sounded identical to the stereo and was good and as soon as i broke it out into atmos the entire thing fell to pieces completely <laughs> i was like whoa okay holy it's everything was highlighted like massively like much you, all, all that cohesion that i had in the stereo mix had gone and i was still re- recreating my mix bus and i think i'd done it and mixed it almost um film score-esque with no mix bus and gang gang compression and everything on on the channel so i could split it out to atmos and it would be fine and it just absolutely wasn't at all i had to remix it all again for almost another day to um make it all work when it was so everything was so separated and clear and there was so much space and i was like oh my god this is it was a surprise i thought it would be more coherent and and it wasn't at all at all more coherent so at that point it was more raining things in a bit to make them sound more like the stereo mix rather than letting them just go <laughs> it, it, was, it was wild it was wild how massive the difference was as soon as i brought it out into space in stereo it sounded like absolutely identical and then it's like wild, absolutely wild. And we ended up changing it slightly from the stereo because it had a very bright tambourine in it with a lot of loads of 480 on. And uh, and it ended up being duller than the stereo mix because it just you couldn't handle it in Atmos. It was too much. It was everywhere. And so while it was totally slightly different than the stereo mix, it was definitely better for it. You know, 
I don't know if that answers anything. Yeah, no, that, that, I, mean, I don't know if that's any use to Ian, but it was fascinating to me. I loved it. I've, I've got a follow-up comment, which is just, I wonder what the guys who are, like, I took a listen this afternoon just out of curiosity. I turned head tracking on the phone back on, because I normally don't have it on, and just listened to the Atmos version of Kind of Blue. Because to the mm-hmm. best of my knowledge, that's only, the master of that is only three channels. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it sounded surprisingly good, but I was fascinated to wonder what, they actually do you know i've done quite a lot of classic tracks in december and november a lot of classic tracks uh, which are stereo and i've split those into multi-track and mix them in atmos and they they were all sort of they were they worked but yeah so ai stem separation yeah, oh, now that's an interesting topic that I haven't got that on my. <laughs> that's, that's that's another podcast on its own. It, prob- it probably yeah, is. Yeah, I think maybe was... that's beyond the scope. Oh, it's a technical term for it. It's a bastard. <laughs> it's really, really weird, but it, it, you, can, you can work really well. It can work really well. Uh, so, kind of blue. The story I heard, and I heard it secondhand. So this isn't this isn't definite knowledge, but I heard that they didn't take the three channels and Atmos those. What they actually did was play back the album in one of the rooms at Capitol <laughs> and then record the room, and that's the Atmos version that you're listening to. Hmm. I heard this exact story too. That's worrying that it might be true. <laughs> that's what they did with the early Beatles yeah. surround stuff, wasn't it? They, ju- they just played them back in Studio 2 and recorded the, the ambience of the room for the for the rear channels. Um and actually, Emre, my, my question earlier on about like a ground up recording and whether people are using, you know, fancy mic arrays and stuff was um, because I heard Big Mixer saying he was doing exactly that. Oh, Bob Clearmountain, I think literally kind of points four mics at the four corners of the room and records those and then just throws them up, them up into the height information. I mean, I, who knows? I haven't heard any of this stuff. It probably sounds great knowing him. Yeah, I mean, th- that, that's kind of what I'm talking about. It's not, not a coincident array you like take sort of wide spaced kind of discrete mics that's that can be super good and it's sort of technically not you know like a sound field which is basically a mic with a decoder is that that's that you get you get great stuff from that but i think that exact thing you're saying i'm much more convinced that that will be very very effective right that's interesting yeah i want to quiz you mike a little bit more about the practicalities of mastering you know there's this specification that the loudest song should be minus 18 LUFS. And actually, I never said why that is. It's basically to allow for all of this processing that needs to happen if this mix is being played back on a different system. So if you imagine something that works fantastically well in 11 or however many speakers it is, is not necessarily going to work well as a binaural render and certainly not if there isn't sufficient headroom to do all of that processing cleanly. So as I understand it, that's the main reason for this requirement for minus 18. Once you've got that as a benchmark, it's like, okay, the loudest song needs to be at minus 18, then presumably mastering is just a case of, or mixing in Emre's case, if you're you know kind of working on a, a group of songs that are going to go together and they're not going to go off to be separately mastered, um, you just balance them musically in comparison to that loudest song uh are you having to do much of that is that because that's a traditional mastering kind of decision to make right it's just the individual song balance through an album and then the eq balance 
are you finding you're doing lots of that or is the stuff coming in already in great shape and it's not so needed no that's, that i mean that is a good portion of of the role that i'm playing when i'm doing mastering for for atmos is it, it's looking at the bigger picture rather than just each song on their own and looking at the flow of an album as a whole making sure things like the, the overall balance the overall level but also things things like the position of the vocal is fairly consistent the amount of bass information is fairly consistent with allowances for special effects and whatnot and, and individual tracks but you do want a level of consistency across an album uh, and mm. that's that's a traditional mastering role and actually that makes me think of another question are you are most of the projects that are coming to you at the moment all mixed by the same person in the same space? Or Because another thing that we do as mastering engineers is take, it might be two or three different producers, certainly multiple engineers potentially, songs recorded over a wide range of time, or you could even have a compilation album where stuff is all over the place. Are you finding the things that are coming in are already fairly cohesive or are there, is it that aspect of a traditional mastering role as well? For clarity's sake, most of the stuff that I'm doing isn't pure mastering. It's stem up mixing or whatever we're going to call that particular task let's put a pin in that and come back to up mixing yeah keep going (laughs) so of the just mastering something an adm it's always so far been from a single other engineer who's done everything and i've just come in and taken a listen and and mastered it and it's been fairly simple but i do I, i anticipate a time in the future, especially things like compilations or big big pop acts who will use five or six different big name mix engineers across an album. I anticipate those mixes coming in sounding, you know, quite different. Atmos allows for a whole world of new ways of, of putting across your music that, you know, if you've got six different mix engineers working on a record, that's already hard enough from a mastering engineer's perspective. If you throw that into Atmos, you're, you know, you're exponentially increasing the number of ways that those tracks aren't going to be cohesive. So that that's definitely going to become more and more of an issue. Yeah, absolutely. You you mentioned it earlier on. So you you've got uh, effectively gang DQs in order to to be able to EQ an entire because we. You know, if you're mastering a stereo mix, you can put a compressor or a limiter or an EQ over the two stereo channels and influence the entire sound of the of the master. You can do that in 5.1 as well, and even in 7.1. But if you're doing that in Dolby Atmos, where you potentially could have 50, 60, 100 objects all doing their own thing and only ever being rendered down to the final speaker outputs when it gets played back by the you know the person listening to it. Um, it's much harder to envisage. You, you you don't have buses, stereo buses, surround buses to apply processing to. So you were saying you use effectively linked EQs to apply a global change to a master if necessary. And presumably, you, obviously, you can do that with level as well. Would you use limiting or compression in that kind of situation or or not? Yeah, I use limiting and compression in in exactly the same way. So they're all ganged, so the controls are all the same, and they're all running off a side chain. So the amount of compression on every channel is always linked, which works more similar to uh, 
stereo bus compression and Emre's saying he's working in pretty much the same way. You use the tools you have available to you to, to get them and EQ compression limiting is the, the absolute standard tools that we've been using for decades. So there's a few things coming out which is slightly misleading for people when they're saying that Atmos limiters and stuff because they tend to be 7.1.2 wide. I go, well, that's fine. That That's sort of a bed limiter or a 10-channel limiter. That's not how it ends up working, I would say, most of the time. Yeah. Anybody listening to this is probably picking up that Atmos is a complicated topic. And one of the things that's complicated about it is there are multiple different ways of achieving similar results. So I was listening to an interview with Bob Clearmountain. I think if I understood him rightly, he was saying that he'd had multiple hardware compressors um, installed in his desk so that he could effectively use bus compression in the way that we're all used to. And I think he must have been printing that to a bed and then using the height channels and the objects to, to kind of spice everything up, um, which might work, might not work. I mean, you know, I'm guessing if it's him, he's getting great results and everybody's happy with it. And that reminds me of another area of confusion that we still haven't tidied up. So hopefully now we can nail this. You have an Atmos recording is something that's recorded from the ground up that, with the intention that it's going to be produced in Atmos. And we can kind of understand how that could be mixed and produced and you could use different strategies to achieve the results you want. You could also have what might be called an Atmos conversion or might also just be called an Atmos mix from stereo stems, which is the kind of thing that Emery is doing a lot of. And it sounds that Mike is doing some of that as well. And that's kind of this kind of slightly gray area between mixing and mastering where a lot of the processing you're doing might seem familiar from a stem mastering situation, but you're creating a new mix because it's a spatial version of something that already existed. What would you guys like to call that? Is that conversion? Is that mixing? What's a great name for it? I'm now calling that Atmos mixing and mastering because it's too confusing otherwise. Okay. Would you agree with that, Mike? Yeah, at the moment, I'm just calling it Atmos mixing um, for, for exactly that reason. Uh, we, we toyed with various other names, Atmos stem mixing, and it just, everyone, just it's just a mess. So confusing. Yeah. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The conversion is really difficult to say because I was tempted to call this Atmos conversion mixes because it's sort of so respectful to the stereo. It's not really a mix, actually. I'm not really balancing anything other than recreating a stereo balance. Um, and especially when you get guitars involved, it gets very, very interesting, um, especially binaurally. But anyway, but it's still, like, I find it challenging saying it's a mix because it's pff, sort of is but not really. It's very on the side of the mastering with Atmos. I don't know, it's, it's tricky. It's really difficult, just as Mike said. It's really, really... Yeah, I'd, I'd wanted to call it up-mixing for quite a while, which I thought was more... But yeah, but it's, then, then you get blood, then you get up-mixing, yeah. right? <laughs> and, the, the, and the conversion, people get confused and think it's an up-mix, and you go, no, it's not an up-mix. Yeah, okay. But we can't have a conversion. So let's try and pin this one down. Uh, it's um, Okay, so we got mixing and mastering, and they're kind of very closely intimately related to each other that's fine up mixing so back in the day i would up mix maybe a stereo mix to create a 5.1 master if the client requested it and there was no option to go back and do a proper surround mix i used back then the tc system 6000 which had this um module called unwrap in it that actually did a pretty reasonable job of extracting six channels from two channels we were never completely happy with it. So we'd always basically run that through to get the raw materials and then start 
manually automating and EQing and moving around what we had there to create something that was even better. But there are, I mean, I think NewGen make a plugin that does quotes up mixing that attempts to extract Atmos information from a stereo mix. One of you guys that I was talking to in the past mentioned that you had done it with kind of atmospheric effects, I think, you know, kind of maybe weather or yeah. that kind of stuff. Uh, I think that was me. Okay. So you start with you, Mike, and then then Emre. D- does it work? Does it sound any good? It's important to state at this point that what I'm doing is taking a single stereo stem from inside of, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 stems and up mixing that into 7.1.2, which is what the, I use Pentio, but uh, the new Gen 1, the TC, they all work in similar ways. And I'm doing that because I wanted the sound of, in this in the instance I think I was referring to, it was rain sound. And I wanted it to mostly sound like it was coming from all around and uh, rather than just a, sim- a simple stereo object, which is what it was provided to me from the stereo mix. Mm-hmm. But I'm not doing that to everything. And I'm not. Do- I'm certainly not doing that to a stereo mix and then running it through that plugin and going, right, there you go, there's your 7.1.2 up mix. It's that boss now. That's not the, That's not what we're doing at all. That that would be, I mean, that would be a sham. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say that, but there's going to be people telling other people that their plugin will do that for them pretty soon if they're not already. I'm guessing you'd agree with that, Emery. I use Halo a lot and it's absolutely amazing. Uh, in exactly the way the mic says. For elements, it's incredible. Like, so useful. But it also is incredibly challenging binaurally. Um, because how it folds down is very, very clever, but still, you absolutely have to manage that very, very, very carefully. Um, but it's um, it's a brilliant plugin. But yeah, I think what they, what you have a lot of, and still some sneaking through, they're, they're really trying to clamp down on it, is whole to stereo tracks being upmixed. And it, you know, it does a thing but it's not ever comparable to a properly done Atmos mix. Yeah. Um, everything goes everywhere. But there are some really interesting things about that, which is when head tracking is on, an up mix can be uh, successful in some ways because everything is everywhere and it makes the uncomfortable level changes less. Not a solution for making music mixes, I would say, but as a tool, it's... Certainly, Halo, which I use a lot, and Pentio is good, really good as well. Um, it's absolutely invaluable, amazing, amazingly useful. Right. Now, that's cool. Okay, so I think that, I mean, it's good because we've pinned down some specifics. So we've got up mixing is not the same as mixing or even conversion or any of that stuff. But it, and yeah, it works as part of a kind of an array of tools that we can use to create um, a convincing Atmos mix. You mentioned head tracking there. Emre, we should briefly mention that because that's something that some people are confusing. It's That's something that Apple Spatial Audio adds to this mix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Apple Spatial will allow you to listen to, to stream and to listen to an Atmos mix. If you if you can plug it from an Apple TV into a soundbar, you will actually get certainly 7.1.2, maybe in even, even more channels out genuine Atmos mix. If you listen to it on earbuds, you will hear the binaural render, which we've talked about. But then on top of that, by default, they have head tracking enabled. So if you're listening to a mix and it appears that the drums are coming in front of you, when you turn your head to the right, they will suddenly feel as though they're coming into your left ear and, and vice versa. And I've played with that on feature films and it's uncanny, spookily effective. I don't always love the way that it sounds, but the, the effect is amazing. 
I'm not a big fan of it for music, but some people are going to be listening to it that way. And then I guess it's another interesting variable that just kind of helps complicate the whole Atmos situation even more. Thank you so much, you guys. Uh, this has been really interesting. I think this will be really valuable for people listening. I wanted to kind of wrap things up by just asking, how can people listening to this, if they're excited by the ideas of Atmos, can they experiment with it themselves? And I think the kind of the two aspects to that are, you know, in terms of getting access to the software um, and then actually the monitoring environment. So we don't need to spend a ton of time on it. Um, Nuendo and Logic already have... Atmos capabilities built into the DAWs. So if you own one of those, you can start playing with this, certainly the binaural render straight away. And if you have multi-channel speakers, you can, you're probably already doing Atmos. But you can also download the Dolby Atmos renderer as a plugin to work with pretty much, in theory, any DAW. I have it working with an older version of Logic. I know people are using it with Reaper, people are using it with Pro Tools and um I think if you dig around on the Dolby website, you can find instructions on how to get that working with most DAWs. They used to offer that as a free trial. I don't know whether you guys know if that's still available. Don't know. It used to be a 90-day trial, but I don't know. Yeah, but that's certainly worth looking into if you're interested in, in playing with this stuff. And even if you don't have multiple speakers set up, um, then you can enable the binaural render mode and start playing around with the stuff. And I did a short YouTube video demonstrating some of that stuff, which again, we'll link to in the show notes at themasteringshow.com. But then, you know, I mean, if, if anything is clear from this conversation we've had today, it's that really you need to be listening to this stuff on speakers. Metropolis, where Mike works, I believe has claims to have the most advanced Atmos setup in the country. And Emre, I know you invested a ton of time and effort into the, the setup at your place most people are not going to be able to do that, I would guess, because I, most people I speak to say that if you want, uh, the, the cheapest you're going to get a full Atmos rig is £10,000 plus. Um, don't know whether you guys agree with that. I know there's going to be lots of people who will want to expand the, maybe they already have a 5.1 setup or they have a stereo room and they want to add extra speakers. And, you know, there's software out there that helps people calibrate the system and try and get it closer to the ideal response. Do you guys think that's going to work? Is that even worth people trying? On what kind of a budget are we talking? Mm. I don't know. I mean, I've, I've heard people say that there's no point in trying to do Atmos unless every speaker is, is matched, at least in terms of the drivers and tweeters. You know, so that kind of probably immediately sets a, a really low, high minimum price. I'd say that's probably true. It sounds like that makes sense to me. There is conversation you can do, but um, the systems I've seen with different LCR and the rest of the room... Uh, a very, very, very high-end systems, high five-figure systems or more. The best, cheaper rigs I've seen by miles have been the Genelette ones with GLM, which solve masses of issues um, in Atmos. But still, that's still a decent chunk of money. You know, uh, I think your ten grand figure isn't isn't off at all, really. Um, which is going to be a bit much for people to experiment. I think. And also there's quite reasonable specs in terms of SBL. Uh, and as your room size increases, it gets, you know, exponentially greater demand. So um, it, it can be really expensive if you have even a mid-sized room to get a, a sort of effective Atmos system. Um, my mix room is quite small and that 
you know, meant I could have a smaller system generally, and then I have two subs to base manage the smaller speakers. So that worked out well. If it was much bigger, my friend's room is, you know, not much bigger, and it was an entirely different setup. It added almost a zero onto the cost. It was it's a huge extra expense. So yeah, it's pretty pretty expensive to do. But um, there's a lot to be said for doing stuff on headphones as a sort of experiment and then going to an Atmos room. If you're really serious about it, you know, you don't have to have a rig, but you have to have access to a room, I would say. So you can do a lot of prep and then come in for a day or two days and, and mix, do all the final mixes after getting some experience. But there's not a massive shortcuts of being in that decent speaker environment, I think. But that's just my experience of it. Do you think that's kind of initially discouraging because... I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, even a multi-channel interface is going to cost you probably thousands of pounds mm. if you buy, you know, something decent. Let alone turning it up and down. <laughs> yeah, monitor controller, absolutely. All the rest of it. Um, this is where GLM is is very good. Actually, as a sort of like the cheapest entry point, I can't think of any any better way of doing it because you can just control the speakers with GLM and and do all the room correction and the delays and tonal corrections and volume for, for no extra money effectively so that, that's sort of not bad but still you know it's not not a not nothing at all no like you said um, mike is the system at metropolis is there any kind of um software element to that monitoring or is it a kind of a purist speaker setup i'm just curious no there's plenty of software involved yeah so we're running dad manager uh, dad's uh, interface software which has a bunch of EQ and corrective and stuff and delays. All the speakers need to be correctly delayed so that the sounds come out at the right time uh, and it's all phase aligned and all that kind of thing. I, I wasn't really involved in putting that all together, so I don't know too much about... Power move. Yeah, I... Uh, <laughs> we had, I mean, we had... Uh, I, have, I have a chap for that. Come in and do that. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly what happened. Yeah, it definitely is. There's a lot of software and we've tweaked it since it was originally put in because I wasn't 100% happy with sounds moving around, staying consistent. Yeah. Especially as our LCR speakers are different to the rest. I mean, they're the same brand and the same, but they're, they're much larger. Um, what make is the, so as you move, the speakers in there? It's all Neumann. Right. So as you move to the smaller Neumanns, at the sides and the rears, it was it was changing tonally too much. So I've tweaked the crossovers and things and dealt with all of that stuff. It's quite interesting if you're listening in an Atmos room, if you move a stereo object, effectively stereo mono object, from the front to the rear and listen to your speakers, and then do a true mono object on one side to the rear and then the other side to the rear, it can really highlight stuff that you don't hear in mono but then when when both sides of the room are active it should still effectively be really smooth and it's quite interesting that i've done that in a few rooms which sounded fine and it's been whoa okay like mike said it's the tweaking is can be massive yeah just to feel that smooth transition of objects which is really important Atmos is kind of a feel thing it, when you're mixing it it's just like stereo in that way it, it feels like a record and then it's right it's not really thinking oh, i'll place this at 35 degrees over here and minus 4 dB, it's not not that kind of thing. All the technical size and the setup and the approach, but the actual mixing is very much like a stereo mix. You know, you make it feel like a record and cohesive and everything. And if your room's off, it's really hard. Mm. You know, effectively, you're looking at pairs of LCR around the rooms. And if 
they're all off. I mean, it's quite a feat to have it all aligned properly, really, when you think about it. Pretty much everybody I've talked to or heard talking to about the setup for Atmos has one way or another it has been an ordeal or a massive challenge that's going to discourage people listening from the idea of setting up their own atmos system but i liked the suggestion you had emery i mean presumably if somebody you know plays around with binaural spatial mixes of artists they like themselves and the in the headphones they're going to be using to get an idea of how things might want to feel then maybe takes some stereo mixes and starts experimenting with breaking them out into binaural i feel like if it was me i would at that point want to send it to someone like you or mike to get a very early kind of yeah no this is completely wrong you don't want to do that change this that and the other so kind of an initial sort of orientation bit of feedback before you really dug into trying to get some better results and then like you say booking a day or two how, how long does it take most people kind of think about mixing in stereo in a day maybe less depending on you know how they work, how the engineer works. How long do you think to, to just to mix a song? Is it feasible to do a song in a day? If somebody's put things together themselves and is coming to you for the... How long's a piece of string, Ian? <laughs> it's in- incredibly, incredibly complex. It's an enormous task. It can be very quick if everything is in order, but it often isn't. Okay. So realistically, if somebody was thinking, they, you know, they've listened to all of this and they want to get into it, they should be allowing several days for their first Atmos mix. Yeah. Um, the, the the thing with it is, I did my first Atmos mix was a major label single on midnight of the day of the Apple release, with a frantic call from an A and R guy going, "You told me about this. Uh, can you do it?" I was like, "Ah!" But what what I'd done beforehand is that the prep is the mindset. It's not not really how long it takes to do it. It's to understand what you're trying to do. And I was just had, you know, two months of amazing advice from the very best people and that was you know amazing so that that you when you know what you're shooting for it makes a hell of a lot more sense um if you're just sort of shooting blind the very first one i did before i'd even done that was an absolute mess and i have the excruciating memory of sitting in in dolby playing back the first thing i'd done going oh god what have i done with like two or three people looking around politely nodding going yeah no some, some you know not all bad well done <laughs> you, you recorded it in at least um so that was something but um uh if somebody's coming to you with something that they've been working on you know yeah i i wouldn't put a time limit on it when you're starting i don't think get what you're trying to do because i mean i had something sent you know uh i think for dolby sent someone to me for a similar thing that you know might get sent i've done this can you save it and it was it was absolutely impossible they'd gone out they'd gone mad you know and then there were like a hundred objects and everything was moving and everything was in the middle of the room and and then everything was also in the bed and it was just this is absolutely impossible to work with um but uh i don't think they knew what they were aiming for they were just trying to do something so if you've got sort of like a plan about what you want to achieve with the why you mix doing an atmos mix not just because you know what would you want if it's an experiment that's brilliant you know that's at least something you're aiming for but i think if you're not aiming towards anything it's going to be a massive problem you know you're just going to go in circles because it's so potentially so complex and so many options without a sort of feeling of what you're aiming for i think that yeah. might be tricky so if you want to get into this stuff reach out to somebody with experience of atmos as soon as possible and get that conversation started get a two-way process of feedback to get over all of those teething problems early in the process so you're not doing it all in the last 
it sounds like me talking to somebody about a mastering project. <laughs> Which sounds like a pretty good place to stop, in fact. Emre, Mike, thank you so much for being here and talking about this stuff with me. I know people listening are going to find this fascinating, so thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. I hope you did find this interesting or useful to listen to. If you did, please head over to themasteringshow.com forward slash review and leave us a five-star rating because those are the ones we like and tell anybody else you think might be interested wants to find out more about Atmos or mastering in general. Thanks as always to John for keeping everything going in the background and having the unenviable task of editing this episode. Thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music and thanks for listening. <laughs>